Hope Church. This morning we're going to continue um, in our study of the book of Matthew, and we're working our way straight through the book, and so this morning we're in chapter 9, and we'll start there. I'm going to read the first eight verses, we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it. So it says, um, so he, that's Jesus, got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city, and then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. At once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. So he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your, your love and your power, your goodness to us, God. We do pray, um, as Derek did in this time, you would have your way uh, in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Please teach us from your word and help us to apply what we learn from your word as we go out uh, the rest of this day, the rest of this week. And Lord, may your word become... Um, Really what, what is in us and what goes through us, that your, your spirit, God, would use your word um, to transform us, that um, we don't have to think and, and ponder in different situations what the right thing to do is, uh, but we, we just do it instinctively because of your spirit within us and your word um, that is in our hearts and in our minds and on our tongues. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. And so, in this scene, um, in a previous week, we were, you know, in chapter eight, and you know, they they had gone across the Sea of Galilee. You had the demon possessed men. You had the man who, um, you know, wanted um, after he was freed from that, wanted to to go and to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, you know, I've got basically, I have a different plan, you know, for your life. I want you to go to the Decapolis, to these ten cities. I want you to, you know, share with your family and friends there, and. Uh, and he does that and, and even beyond that. And we talked about the importance of, you know, how we handle when God's, you know, that we handle well when God's plan is different than our plan. And that we are faithful and obedient to him and that we trust him and that we, that way we have the full joy um, of everything that God has for us. We're not sitting there the whole time going, well, I wish it had been this other story. You know, I wish that this other narrative was the way that my story of my life was. Instead, we come to embrace and to have joy and to be fully be obedient in the story that God has, you know, for us. And so uh, we take that. So he's gone across the sea. You know, on the way there, there was the big storm. Jesus had calmed it, and now they're you know they're going to go back across the Sea of Galilee um, again, uh, back, you know, back to home base. And so he's there. It's clear from these. The same account um, is in also in Mark and in Luke, and it's clear in, in that account 
that they're, they're in a house and it's crowded and there's not room. And this, the, these people, these men who wanted to bring this paralytic um, into, the, into the house can't go directly in the front door. There's just too many people around. So the way that the housing construction is in this time, in this, this area, there's normally a, a flat roof, and that flat roof can be used you know, for, for various um, things. And there's usually a staircase that goes up you know, from the outside to that. Um, and so it's, it's an extra part, really, of the, of the home and of the way of life. And so you imagine them going up the outside steps to the top of the roof, and they you know, basically remove the, some of this top roofing that, or these tiles that they're able to, to open up a way to then lower this paralytic man down on a mat in front of Jesus. And, you know, it's really... Um, an amazing, amazing thing. I think, you know, when, when we hear this story or when we tell the story, when they hear the story, you know, we say, okay, so this man had really awesome, you know, four really awesome friends. You know, we, we put the number four because you got to have one for each corner of the mat, right? So we, we put a number on it. Um, just like the wise men, we say, well, there was three gifts. So there must be three wise men. We just kind of read what we want to kind of into the story. Um, and, and we're, you know, we're, they're his friends. And that's why they're doing this. But, you know, I'm reading each of the accounts here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and I'm trying to find friend, you know, that they're, they're, they're really friends. And it's really, it's just, they're, they're, they're people. We don't know that they have a close relationship. We don't know whether they do or don't with this man. Okay? We do know, we can say beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that they are living out the Old Testament teaching of love your neighbor as yourself. That they are living, that they are practicing that. They know Jesus is in this house. They know Jesus has the power to heal this man. They, they do what they would want done for themselves in the situation. They love him like they love them, themselves. And so they do the work that is necessary. And they really... You know, they, they go the extra mile. They're not content to say, well, we tried to get you to Jesus, but, you know, you see it's crowded. The people won't make a way for us to get through. We did our best. We'll leave you here or we'll take you back to your place. No, they, they don't, they're not content with that. They're not going to take no for an answer. For them, failure is not an option. They must get this paralytic man to Jesus. They are determined to do so. And so it says when Jesus saw their faith. So I, I think that there, that there is collective. He sees the faith of the ones who helped. And they see the, he sees the faith of the one being helped. Okay, you know, you couldn't have a... This doesn't work if the man on the mat says... Don't believe anything good is going to happen to me today. You know, um, so it's collective. But Jesus said to him, you know, son, be of good courage. You know, be of good cheer, be of good courage, that sort of idea. And then he says to him an unusual phrase that is completely and utterly unexpected. Your sins are forgiven you. 
You know, but what did the man come there for? You know, what did the people take him there for? Did they take him so that his sins would be forgiven? They, they took him so that he would, like others had been healed, that they've known that Jesus has healed others, that Jesus would heal this man and he would be able to walk again. That was their motivation. But Jesus has his reasons for doing what he does here. He has multiple reasons. One, he always knows that the spiritual needs of any person are greater than their physical needs. Our spiritual needs are our highest needs. To be forgiven from our sins, to be put in right relationship with God is our highest need. You need that more than anything else. I need that more than anything else. Ultimately, we need to be in relationship with our Creator God. That is higher than our need for water, higher than our need for air, higher than our need for food. I understand we need these things in order to live here on this earth. I mean, that's, that's just kind of the point, that it's even more important than that. The basic things that you need in order to survive physically, there's a higher need, and it's your, our spiritual need. Yet because we are physical beings, we often put you know, our physical needs higher than our spiritual needs. Hence why, you know, unless we are in a, in a situation outside of our control, war famine, war famine, or that we have made a determined vow before God that we're not going to eat for a specific, specific amount of time, you're going to eat every day. If you have access to it, you know, you're going to drink multiple times a day. Might not even be straight water, but it's something that has water in it. It might be straight coffee, but that's largely water. It might be soda, but it's largely, we don't say soda down here. We say Coke. It's gonna be, you're going to drink a Coke of whatever variety, but it's, you know, it's largely water. You're going you're gonna to intake water. You're going to intake H2O every day unless you have made some sort of vow that even for a specific amount of time, you're not going to do that. Or there is a war or famine that inhibits you from doing that. We're always going to take need. We are going to spend the money on the clothing, the, the housing, the transportation, the entertainment. Whatever it is that we feel, A, that we need, B, that makes us enjoy life. Yet our spiritual needs are so much higher Yet oftentimes we'll voluntarily go without. Not for any specific reason, just out of putting the fleshly things higher than the spiritual things. We put our secondary needs above our primary need. We all tend to do that. I know I am guilty of, of such. So I'm not saying here, be good, you bad. No, we have a problem. We have a problem. And Jesus knows that. He knows what we will emphasize. And he says to this man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus addresses the highest need first. But he also does this because of the religious leaders who are present. 
it's both a test and an opportunity for them. But because their hearts have consistently been against him, they're going to fail this test. They say within themselves, this man blasphemes. Because only this is a test of faith. I mean, it is one of two things. Either Jesus is telling the truth here or he is blaspheming. Only, you know, they know from the, from the teachings of the Old Testament that it is clear that only one has the power to forgive sins, and that is God. Ultimately, that authority rests you know, with God. And so either Jesus is committing blasphemy or he is altogether different. Those are the two options there. You know, they can't take him as he's just another prophet or he's just another teacher or he's just a, you know, he's a good person. Those kind of middle of the road options that so many people want to believe about Jesus today are not viable options. You know, not everything in life is an all or nothing. Jesus being God or not is an all or nothing. Jesus being the Messiah, the Savior, the King, it is an all or nothing. There are some things in life that are all or nothings, and this is one of them. It can't be somewhere in the middle. Now imagine this, it says, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk. But you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now, we have a couple things here. One is this phrase, you know, son of man. Um, don't be confused by this. The religious leaders, the scribes, some people will say, oh, well, you know, so when Jesus is saying he's the son of man, I mean, he's saying that he's not God. He's just saying he's another human being. No, 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 no. When you read, you know, the book of Daniel, for example, you see clearly these religious leaders are going to understand that this is a claim, this phrase it's a fulfilling a prophetic claim, and it's going to it's a clear claim of, of deity. Those who are, are the scribes who have devoted their lives to studying the Old Testament scriptures are, are not going to have any doubt about what Jesus is saying here. Now the multitudes might not fully get that. They might not fully make that connection. Okay, and I think we have a clear a cue later that they, they don't fully get the connection yet. But he says, you know, he's going to do this as evidence that he's going to have this paralytic man walk as evidence that Jesus does have the power to forgive sin. So he says, arise, take your bed and go to your house. And this man does so. It's probably a little bit understated here as he arose and departed to his house i imagine that there was some skipping and some jumping and some leaping on the way back home just going to you know again we don't want to read too much into our version of the events that aren't told to us but you got to imagine if a man can't walk he's going to be and i think we see that in other scriptures when people couldn't walk and there's there's going to be some we see how high we can get off this ground you know i i bet if you put a basketball goal out there he might have you know, he might have thrown one down. I mean, you know, he didn't have the game back then, but he might have thrown one down if they had. Anyway, that's kind of how I tend to think about it. But um, he's excited. He arose, went to his house. 
And it says, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God. Or in the Greek there, the idea is they were in awe. They were in awe. Like, what have we just witnessed? What have we seen? There is a, a power. that, and a, I mean, there's a reverence that they have. There's a, probably a, a tinge of fear that's a hopeful, but also with a hopeful expectation. You know, it's a pretty complicated. Awe is a pretty complicated emotion. You know, all is understanding I'm in the presence of something much bigger than myself. God is doing something here that I don't, that I am not fully worthy of. And so it's exciting and a little bit scary. But when the multitude saw it, it says they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. And you kind of wonder there, okay, there's an indication they don't fully. You know, the multitudes here don't fully understand yet Jesus' claim to deity or that he is God. You know, many of them are going to be on the fence. Or, you know, we're, and we're going to actually, eventually we see many of the multitudes, you know, move away in unbelief. Which is sad, but that's how it goes. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're not fully there yet to say that Jesus is the king that he is the promised one uh, that is um, the son of God so they're not quite there but Matthew as he writes this to us after the fact he's doing so in this progression to show God's authority over you know sickness over demons and now even of the authority and the power to forgive sins. Because you know, Matthew's point in making this argument is that Jesus came as the king. He comes as the king who is humble, who is a servant, who ultimately his purpose is to die for us. And then that we would take his new kingdom throughout the earth. Okay? But he, he's, he's making that progression you know, he's not even super concerned about being, I mean, he, he's somewhat in chronological order, but not fully, because that's not his chief concern. His chief concern is, you know, developing this theme of Jesus being this great servant king who has all the power and all authority over everything. And so that's why very near the beginning, after just a little bit of miracle, you have, you know, what we, call, we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, where it's his, his authority to teach. And it's not like the scribes and the Pharisees teach. It's a, it's a different power in his teaching. And then from there through here, we have this you know, kind of continuous theme of the authority of Jesus being played out. And certainly, I would hope that by this point, we see that he has authority to teach us how he wants us to live. He has the authority to heal sickness. He has authority to cast out demons. He has a Authority to make a man walk, but more importantly, has the authority to forgive sins, then certainly he has authority over my life. I mean, that's only logical, right? I mean, we, you know, if he has all that, if I believe he has done all that and he is all of that, if I believe he is the Savior and the King, then certainly he's the one who has the authority and he kind of gets to dictate the terms of everything. Now, Because he's a loving, gracious, 
servant king, you know, he's normally not, you know, twisting our arm for our obedience. I mean, yes, we know that the scripture tells us that God, you know, does discipline us, that he, you know, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, you know, that God's goal is to keep us on the right track. But, you know, as we see, as Jesus is, you know, a servant who comes to sacrifice himself for us, he's not just going to, he's not just trying to, to bow beat beat us into, you know, living how he wants us to live and doing what he wants us to do. It is a relationship. And so that's where we need to have the humility to acknowledge, God, you have given me so much freedom, and I actually have the freedom to, to sin. You know, even as a follower of Jesus, I have the freedom to sin. I have the freedom for foul words to come out of my mouth, for, to entertain, not just for the bad thoughts to come into my head, but to let them stay there and to entertain them. I have the, the freedom to, to injure others in one way or another. So God wants us to have the humility to say, Lord, we need your help to live under your authority and according to your ways. Because we still carry around this human flesh and this human flesh is going to you know, usually mess it up, right? So King Jesus has all of that authority. Um, let's, let's move um, a little more rapidly in this next section. We have already talked about verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. So this is the one who's writing all of this. And so, again, we think Matthew put this here, not back a, a, a little bit earlier because he didn't want to you know, toot his own horn. But in chapter 8, he gives us you know, this section where Jesus talks about excuse makers. You know, about, we're talking about counting the cost of following Jesus. And Jesus gives us this, these examples, or given these examples, Matthew gives us these examples in this conversation with Jesus of people making excuses of why they can't do that right now. And then Matthew here in 9, you know, he's not an excuse maker. He's, he's one who is obedient. Jesus says, come and follow me, and he does. He just does. He leaves his business. You know, he leaves everything he has, and he begins to follow Jesus. Now, then in verse 10, this is cool. So Jesus is going to go to Matthew's house. It says, now what happened is Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples, And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we have this idea here that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Now, I... I want to say, culturally speaking, in our environment today, people don't like the idea of being called sinners. People don't like this word at all. Many churches have just kind of basically stopped using the term because, you know, we don't want to offend people. So we're not going to say sinners because we're not going to say people do bad things. We don't want to, quote unquote, judge, right? So we take that instruction and manipulate it and abuse it to make it a really easy thing where we just say, Okay, we're all basically good people. 
who basically do good things, but occasionally maybe, a, you know, we could use a little help. So Jesus will be your helper. And so if you just sprinkle a little Jesus in your life, then your great life will be even better. Well, that's really not the message Jesus gives. Um, the message is that we're all broken. So the problem is, on the other side, is when you have this, well, we're the righteous ones, and y'all are the sinners. It's like, actually, we're all sinners. We've got forgiven sinners and not yet forgiven sinners. If you're alive today on the earth, you're either a forgiven sinner or a not forgiven sinner. Now, how do you become a forgiven sinner? Well, asking for forgiveness, right? So, but in order to do that, you have to know, I'm sinful. I've done some things that are wrong in the sight of God. God has this standard. His holiness is the standard, and I have failed to meet that. Well, it's not just you, it's all of us. We just don't meet his standard. So we need some help. We need a lot of help. And Jesus says that he is a friend. You know, he is called a friend of sinners in Matthew 11 and Luke 7. Jesus is described as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, in in our vernacular, it would be, you know, because you have to understand the context, Roman Empire occupying Israel at this time, he's basically being called a friend of traitors and sinners, a drunkard and a glutton. Okay? And so people are going to find their way to accuse Jesus, you know, one way or the other. And so they're going to make, you know, some things that are true. Jesus is a friend of traitors. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is, you know, desires to have friendship with us. There's some things that aren't true. You know, he, he did eat. He did drink wine. That did not make him a glutton or a drunkard. But from the legalistic perspective, because Jesus is in the same house with Matthew, in their minds, still the tax collector, now moving over to Team Jesus, or whatever. Um, And then, you know, with all of Matthew's friends who are notorious sinners in the community, so they see Jesus at that table, and they assume then that he is sinning right along with them. They want to assume that. Because they want to have reason to accuse him the whole time. They're they're trying to figure out a way to undermine his authority. Um, to remove him as a threat from their power structure. Because they, at this point, do view him as a threat to their way of life. And so Jesus is willing to be misinterpreted, to be misunderstood, to be falsely accused. Why? Because it's a whole lot easier to reach people who know they have problems than to reach people who think they are perfect or they are righteous, that they are in no need. You know, he used that example of a doctor. You know, a a doctor, you know, for the person to come to the doctor, they have to admit and to know, hey, my health isn't great. But you have arrogant people who, you know, are stubborn people 
who will be very sick and will say, no, there's nothing wrong with me and refuse to go to the doctor. You have people who will die in their homes of very treatable, very curable things because they're too stubborn to say, I'm actually sick and I need some help. So, please don't do that physically, but more importantly, please don't do that spiritually. To say, I don't need help. I'm fine. When in fact, that's not the case. So Jesus plays to this. First he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And he quotes uh, from the book of Hosea. And they can look through the book of Hosea and they could also look through other Old Testament prophets where... You know, it's the heart of the people, the heart of the religious people at times is so foul that they feel like as long as they give, gave their tithes and their offerings, tithes and offerings, two different things, but as long as they gave their tithes and their offerings, and that the sacrifices were made in the temple, that then they could treat people poorly. They could commit the sins they wanted to commit without having to worry about it because it was all taken care of through their religious activities. You know, and we've seen that throughout history. I mean, it's kind of one of those things like if you've seen any of you know, the, the Godfather movies. And, and you have the, you know, there's one scene um, where you know, there's this um, christening happening. Um, in the church, you know, in church building, at the same time that the orders are being carried out to execute, you know, these various people. Um, and so, you know, you have this going back and forth between these words and these scenes in the, you know, in that that service, and then what's happening out there. And it's kind of like, well, one justify, you know, one can justify the other or, or make it all okay. Like it's always going to balance out. Um, you know, in the end. And this was, you know, that's, that's obviously an extreme, extreme example of that. But this is the heart that Jesus is getting at here. You know, these scribes and Pharisees are much more concerned about the outward appearances, the, the ceremonies, fulfilling the traditions, and the appearance of righteousness than about whether they actually love their neighbor or not. They actually, their heart is for God or not. They may go to the, to the synagogue or go to the temple and they may sing the Psalms. And yet their hearts be very far away from the words that are being said, even out of their own mouths. And so that's one of the accusations that God gives in the Old Testament you know, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So this would be the same thing said to, these, to the scribes and Pharisees at the time of Jesus. From God would, would say that same, you know, that's that same prophetic voice to them is, you know, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that's evidenced by how they treat Jesus and their desire to actually murder him. So Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And there he's throwing out that question in a way of who's righteous. 
who's a sinner, who really needs to repent. Because if you never think you need to repent, if you never think you have to turn from anything, then you probably won't. It's as simple as that. And so there can no, there cannot be a gospel of Jesus Christ, there cannot be a good news of Jesus Christ without the acknowledgement that we as human beings have fallen short of the glory of God. That we need help. Without the need for help, there is no gospel of Jesus Christ. So for a lot of people, they first have to be convinced that they actually need help. Okay, and so that's what the law is for. So let's move on and we'll just finish with this thing here, verses 14 through 17. Disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. Now this is interesting because this is coming from the disciples of John the Baptist. Who are going to be naturally, natural followers of Jesus. Are going to want to follow Jesus. Like, is, you know, they're having that same question. Is Jesus you know, the Messiah or should we look for another? So they have this question. Why aren't the disciples of Jesus, why don't we see them fasting? You know, and, and here it is, this, it is a literal, you know, they're not, they're not fasting from social media they're not fasting from chocolate. You know, this is a literal, like, fasting as in terms of not eating. And the, Pharisees, and the Pharisees and the scribes, you knew they were fasting because they would disfigure their faces. They would look downtrodden and go out in public. And people would say, oh, what spiritual people. They're fasting. You know, they want everybody to know. So Jesus, when he tells us when we do that we're not supposed to make a show of it. It's not for public display. It's for private you know, relationship with God, enhancement, um, and, and to remember our dependence on Him. So Jesus said to them in His response, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So there, He's making this illusion, that this this. It's a forward-looking kind of thing of, the, of really of the church that you know Jesus is the bridegroom, his church, the people are his bride, and so he's using that figurative language, you know, looking forward. But he is the bridegroom, and so you know, if you ever been to a wedding, you know, it'd be pretty pretty bad to act if you are, are you know with the bridegroom, you're part of that party, to act as if you're at a funeral. Now, some people do this because they have a very distorted view of marriage because of experiences and bad things that have happened and everything else. But it would be pretty, I mean, you know, we're going to your funeral today. You know, I mean, it would be a pretty bad, that's a terrible perspective. I know some people have that terrible perspective, but, you know, you're with Jesus. He's healing people. He's teaching. He's, you know, making a paralytic man walk. It's. You know, it's a time to celebrate and to be joyful. And we're going to sit in Matthew's house, who you know was a traitor to everything, who's now a follower of Jesus, and we're going to have a party. So we're going to have we're going to have some food. We're going to have some wine. You know, that's how that is going down there. And so Jesus says, "This can they mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them?" And he says, "But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them." And then they will fast. So there it's clear. Once Jesus says, you know, in this in-between time, 
Jesus has left, Jesus will return. In that time, his disciples will fast. And you see that in the early church. Um, and it's something we can still practice today. But then he says this, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Now, when's the last time any of you have patched your clothing? <laughs> you know, this is, I mean, again, some of these, when we use the agricultural illustrations of Jesus, for his original, you know, for the audience it was written to, and for, you know, almost 2,000 years after that, everybody would understood what was being said because these things were part of everyday's normal li- everybody's normal life. Everybody's everyday normal life. You wouldn't have people reading this and going, what is Jesus talking about? You know, and so just now when we rip wheat and tares and grafting in and these things, if you don't have, you know, any agricultural background at all, it's just kind of like, what? And you need to pull out, you know, an encyclopedia, your, well, your Google or whatever. Okay, we don't even have those anymore, right? Yeah. That was when I was a kid. What does that mean? Go to the encyclopedias. Hmm. Now there's no such, it exists kind of online. It's called Google. Okay. But consider your sources, because the nice thing about the encyclopedias is that they were generally, you know, pretty good. I mean, you got some areas where, you know, could use some work or wasn't fully accurate or whatever. I mean, consider your sources, people. You know, just, I read on the internet. Okay. Um, Yes. I read on the internet in the encyclopedia. So... He says this, so this is the idea, if you have a tear, you know, if I got a big tear in my pants, if I sew on a piece of, of cloth to cover it that hasn't been shrunk yet, and then I put it in the wash, well, it's going to shrink, you know, and when it goes through that process, it's going to shrink and it's going to just make a bigger hole. So I'm going to like have tried to solve a problem and made a bigger problem. So he says the same thing with the wineskins. He says, neither, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. Okay, so when you put wine um, into a new wineskin, that wine, is, as it ferments, is going to cause an expansion. And that new wineskin is going to be able to expand with it, and it's all good. Once you've used that wine, if you pour new wine back into that old wineskin and it expands, now, the ability of that wineskin, it's already stretched. That material has already stretched as far as it can stretch. And so it's going to burst and it's going to spill out. And it's going to ruin both the container and what was put into it. We got it? That makes sense? So, you put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Jesus, as we've studied through the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. So he, it's, he is the, the vehicle for this, and it's a new wine. You know, even when you have the, the Last Supper with the disciples, you know, he's saying this is, you know, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the new covenant that we are taking. You can't put it in and make it part of the old. You can't make it part of the law of Moses. It is altogether separate. Because if you take the new covenant in Jesus and you try to pour it back in, to the Old Covenant given through Moses, you're going to ruin both the Old Covenant and the New. Because the Old still has a purpose. The primary purpose of the Old Covenant is to show us that we need a New Covenant. That we need Jesus. 
Because the old covenant is too dependent, and it's intentionally too dependent, on us as humans to fulfill our side of the contract. And in the new covenant, all that is required is faith in Jesus because Jesus handles the contract. Because he's the one who died on the cross for us and who rose you know, from the dead. So all this security, all the insurance of it is on him. And so then when you enter into it, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise that God puts his guarantee on that contract that he's going to fulfill it for you. So we still use the Old Testament law. How do we use it? If someone thinks that they are not in need of a Savior. Well, in the law it says, you know, you shouldn't lie. Have you ever told a lie? What do you call someone who tells lies? You shouldn't steal. What do you call someone who steals? A thief. Okay, we've gone two covenants, and we've got you down as a liar and a thief. You know, pretty much every last one of us, at some point in life. You know, it's like, should we continue? What do you say about someone who uses the name of God in vain? What do you say about someone who puts other gods ahead of the true and living God? What are people like that? You know, what have we? We've all done it. You know, we're all we're all guilty. The scripture says, if you've broken. One part of the law, you know, it's like you're, you're guilty of the all in the sense that you are you know, a guilty person. Right? So that's, it still has a purpose. But the new we have to make separate. Okay? The new is what enables us. It's why we're here on a Sunday and not here on a Saturday. Okay? If you, if you poured it back into the old, we'd still be here on Saturday. On the Sabbath. But we're not here on the Sabbath. We're here on the first day of the week. The day that Jesus was risen from the dead. Because it's a new covenant. And when you're in the new covenant, you're not held to the obligations of the old. If you're held to the obligations of the old, it would say, you know, what's your income? And if you hadn't given 10% of that, plus your offerings, you're guilty. You're guilty. And in the new covenant, it's the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Give according to what's impressed upon your heart. Now, I'll let us all try to figure out whether that's going to be more or less than the old standard. So don't try to use, you know, people try to use that. Well, I'm under a new covenant, so I don't need to give anything because, you know, I'm not under the old covenant obligation to tithe. And the question then is, well, where's the heart? Because Jesus says he loves a cheerful giver. I mean, the scripture says God loves a cheerful giver. So then where's the heart? But the whole equation has changed. We are not under, you know, point by point rules to follow. You still have the heart of the Old Testament law intact. Love God, love neighbor as self. Everything falls under that. If I love God 100%, then I'm going to want to be generous to the Lord. Right? I mean, that just makes sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense to say, oh, I'm going to love God with all that I am, and I'm going to be stingy. Like, that doesn't work. It doesn't say, you know, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, and then I see my neighbor in need and not try to help him. Like, that doesn't work. 
You know, so we, you know, yes, there are things that we're supposed to do and not do, but you can sum it all. You don't, you don't need a law that says don't murder when your higher arching is love your neighbor as yourself. You know, only people, the people who need the law that says don't murder are people who aren't in relationship with God and are under the, already under a higher law to love. You know, in society, we still have to have laws against negative behavior. But for a follower of Jesus, you just need the positive law, which is love God, love neighbor, and you won't do the negative things. See the difference between the need for the civil law in terms of our human activities, of the, you know, dealing with people who don't follow Jesus or aren't following him fully? Whenever I sin, it's not a... It's just simply a problem that I'm not loving God and loving my neighbor. All of my sins are summed up in that. Are summed up in that. Now, of course, if I break one of those things, I'm still subject to this. I'm not saying you're not subject to civil law. Of course you are. Still part of a society. Right? Don't test it. But, most importantly, that's nothing. What a human judge says about it is nothing. Because we all, as followers of Jesus, are going to stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ to receive in our bodies what was done, whether for good or for bad. We receive the reward or the loss of the reward. That's so much more significant than the rules of our society. Because when we love God and love neighbor, our society doesn't have anything to worry about us. You know, our society doesn't have to say, you know, there's going to be this, you know, you know, this heavily armed, crazy group of followers of Jesus that are wrecking havoc in the community. Those things can't go together in terms of, I mean, you can still like to shoot your guns and hunt and stuff. I'm not saying, but in terms of wrecking havoc in the community, followers of Jesus don't wreck havoc in their community because if they were wrecking havoc in the community, they're not followers of Jesus. At least not wrecking it in terms of the hurting people. Now, you may wreak havoc in your community by loving enough and by telling the truth enough and by caring enough, but it's a good sort of havoc. Just put it at that. It might get people's attention. There may be some people who don't like it, especially if their hearts are bent towards things that are evil. But followers of Jesus are going to do what's right. So here's our questions. As we see the that we're in the new covenant, but what we learn from this this morning, as we we put all of this together, the questions for us: Are we willing to go the extra mile? That's a big lesson for us. Are we willing to go the extra mile? Like number two, like Jesus, are you a friend of sinners? Do you regularly share your meals with people who are not yet his disciples? And now we have to be clear on that. Jesus maintained, for us, what other people said, Jesus maintained his personal purity in that. So, you know, a lot of times people will use that as an excuse, you know, to get their buzz on. You know, like, well, I'm, I, I get to, to go and just, you know, have a good time. No, Jesus had a purpose in being with them. And it wasn't to get a buzz. It was to share his life with them. So don't use 
that is an excuse for any sort of excessiveness or any, any sort of uh, sin. And the third thing is, do you carry with you the new life-giving wine in the new wine skin to share with the world? You know, that is Jesus. Do we carry Jesus and his new covenant, you know, with us to share? Um, well, we, one of the biggest things we learned this last week, you know, is in our approach with that. So how do we, you know, how we're engaging in our world, if I just summarize it in a couple of sentences, it is to be friends, we need to be friendly. You know, if you're not friends yet, well, you know, be friendly. And even if, a, if it's a short in, encounter with someone, still, you know, act in a friendly manner. Ask questions. Listen. Ask wondering questions. <laughs> Listen some more. And then ask permission to share as is appropriate for that context. You know, it's, it's not complicated. Don't overcomplicate it. It's, and, and, you know, every conversation with that is probably going to be different. It's not a formula. But it is a way of living. You know, and it's, and it's how we see Jesus interact, you know, with people so often. You know, just sit down and read Jesus with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And how he communicates with her and how he asks questions and how he listens and how he responds. And so let's strive to do that. Uh, and let's strive to follow Jesus in all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for your good, goodness to us. We thank you, Jesus, that you brought for us a better covenant. The covenant that was paid for with your blood. Thank you that you love us so deeply. Lord, we pray that as we take that bread and cup this morning, we would remember you, Jesus. We remember your great love for us. That you would examine our hearts through your Holy Spirit. You would show us anything that we need to change, anything that we need to confess, Lord, we would do so. And Lord, help us to take that bread and that cup with thanksgiving. And as we leave here, desire, give us a desire to engage the people in our community with your love and your grace. We ask it, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.